This is a Wool Observatory podcast. Hello and welcome to Star Stuff, a space podity. This is Cody Half Moon. And this is Madison Mooney or Maddie and Mooney. Maddie or. Mooney. <laughs> um, and today we have Kevin Schindler, who is um, our legend, our historian, our ultimate in- internal tour guide. Um, author, all the awesome things. Kevin, um, who are you? Who am I? Who are you? That what are you doing crazy. here? <laughs> who is Kevin Schindler? Who is Kevin? Somebody said free food and I showed up. That's right. <laughs> we had to trick you somehow. It's, <laughs> so your title is historian. Right. What other titles have you had at Lowell and how long have you worked here? Well, let's see. I've worked here almost 27 years. Um, so I started out as a tour guide um, and then became a supervisor and then managed the education program, I think because everybody else left. And so they were <laughs> left with somebody how to run it. And then at one time, I think it was Maddie's first day here, and she said, look at that guy. He looks like he's old as rock. He must be the historian. And then and it stuck. And yep. so that's been my title since That's then. how you got it. That's how you got yeah. the title. Right. So part of being a historian is just making up historical events. 100%. That's oh, the only way around. to get it. Yeah. We're, we're not sure how much of Lowell history is actually made up, but that's okay. Yeah. Well, I, I learned well from a man named Henry Gickless, who worked his whole career here at the observatory. And he was the elder statesman into his early late 80s, early 90s. And he would tell stories. And I wrote him down furiously, and nobody else had been around to know it. Of course, when he got older, the same story started changing characters and things. So I, I think you know, historian, you get to a certain age, and then um, yeah, you start modifying the story. Well, you just pick the most interesting version, right? Yes. Well, it's like my years in public program. It became clear, um, you know, as we're giving tours, if you get a laugh, like talking about the frying pan on the telescope or that people shot themselves when the dome floated in salt water. If you get a laugh, that's instantly part of the tour. And then the (laughs) the history is sort of massaged. And so early on, one of the things I took on myself was to try to limit those sort of um, perturbations in in accuracy. My favorite thing when, um, whenever I happen to find myself on a tour is making the long running joke to myself, really. It's an inside joke with myself. Every building, I say, oh, yeah, Kevin Schindler actually lived here. Because um, I'm pretty sure you've lived in at least three of the buildings. I have. And I've slept in a couple of others. Yeah. Like, you know, late nights. I, I don't know how many people have slept in the Pluto Discovery Dome, but I have. Because we had a, <laughs> That's awesome. we had a film crew late one night and they were coming back in the morning. So rather than driving back home, I just found a blanket and slept there. And Probably you really and cool. Clyde. Yes, he probably fell asleep. I know his wife um, dropped off a couple times when she helped early on, but she fell asleep and messed up the plate, so he didn't uh. let her stay. <laughs> That's awesome. I, uh, I slept in the the chalet one time. For, I got oh, yeah. to stay there for like a week. That was that was great. 
the chalet is a cool building because that's the beginnings of of the discovery of dark matter happened there because that's where they developed the instrument used um, that that, um, Kent Ford and Vera Rubin used to discover dark matter. Yeah, so I actually, you have huh? that similarity with dark matter. You're both. <laughs> exactly. That's actually when I became goth is staying in that building. I yeah. just like absorbed the residual dark matter. Um, yeah. <laughs> that was before you knew about the people who were murdered there. Oh, well, I mean, I got the vibes. Like I could sense it. Um, but I actually did write my article about the chalet while I was staying there, which was cool because I could just go around and take pictures of whatever and like get inspiration because I was there. <laughs> By myself. Yes, right. And, and I should say for the record, no one was murdered there. <laughs> right. Um, that you know of. Clear. I was yeah. there, for, again, Kevin, I was there unsupervised for a week. Who knows what happened that week? <laughs> I remember when there was construction going on and there were, you know, piles of dirt lying around, but I didn't know what that was for. Now you know. And Add you it to your books. To. <laughs> <laughs> and just to confirm the chalet, uh, when you're going up Mars Hill to Lowell Observatory, it is on the right, and it's um, it's just like a little housing unit that they built for the astronomers originally. Is that correct? Yeah, it was. It's uh, it was it's cool because it was built as a combination observing um, area on one part of the building, and then a place to sleep on the other side, and mm-hmm. so astronomers wouldn't have to go far. And it and the building is cool because it opened like a clamshell, and it's sealed now, and is um, it's now our home of our machine staff and um, grounds crew. It's interesting. It's something that you don't, um, you don't really think about it when you think about working at an observatory, like from a professional services standpoint. Um, When I became like, when I started managing the marketing team at Lowell, uh, a lot of my friends and family were like, man, you sure are, you're there late. You're there that late. And I was like, um, observatory. So <laughs> it's not exactly an eight to five for a lot of people. And, you know, I lived up here, as you said, in um, <laughs> several houses um, through the years and, and would come over at really weird hours to do some work or whatever. And I, there are very few times that I've been here um, through the years that there isn't somebody working um, late at night, three o'clock in the morning, um, pick a time and there's somebody here. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, one of the things I asked for for Christmas was a red flashlight for the times that I'm stumbling around in the dark at Lowell, like when we do our live streams, things like that. Um, so I don't want to so bad. That's not a bad thing to have because years ago, I, I never carried a flashlight. You know, you get dark adapted. I'd let, leave mm-hmm. the office and it'd be dark. And I heard this rustling sound. And so I decided to go back and get a light. Mm-hmm. And I was walking by these oak trees and there was a big porcupine um, just at head level. And I was only a couple of feet away from it. That was the rustling sound. So after that, I, I think that's about when I started carrying a flashlight. Um, just about that time. And I'm sure the javelina sealed the deal for you. Well, the javelina was cool. And, and once we had a a skunk, um, and skunks aren't unusual up here, but we had just opened the what's now known as the Dyer Telescope behind the old Clark 24-inch. And I would always walk backwards with talking to visitors. 
so I could face them. And I was walking backwards there, and this little boy said, hey, there's a skunk behind you. And I thought he was being a smarty pants because that's what little boys <laughs> and big boys too, I guess. But that's how they are. And sure enough, there's a skunk behind me. It was right before sunset. Um, it was starting to darken some. And we stopped, and the skunk just stared at us. I flashed my flashlight at it, and it ran into a drain pipe right underneath the sidewalk. And so we waited a minute. It stayed there. So I took the flashlight off. We started walking and ran out and went back onto the sidewalk. And so I flashed <laughs> my flashlight on again and it ran into the drain pipe. So for about 45 minutes, we rotated staff members who held the flashlight shining at the drain pipe so that the skunk wouldn't come out. Well, it wanted to enjoy that amazing view of Flagstaff from the overlook. Something about Flagstaff skunks, they... It's like all the ravens up here. Are they, are they crows or ravens? I don't know. I They're ravens. not afraid of anything. A skunk held me hostage in my car once. <laughs> that was why <laughs> I was late to a birthday party because of it. Because oh, the skunk, yeah. despite me banging on the window, would not get away from my car. <laughs> I love the, the urgent text. Yeah. There's like this urgent text from Maddie. She's like, help, a skunk is keeping me hostage. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> I think hostage is the word I used. It, like, he was yes. making eye contact with me. He was fully like... I am not letting you leave this car. And then, of course, as soon as everyone came outside to save me, he took off, and then I just looked insane. It was great. So did he really give you the stink eye? Oh. <laughs> um, Kevin is also the uh, the dad joke expert I on campus. It. I'm a dad and a papa, a grandpa, so of course I'm oh. loaded with them. Just elite levels of dad and grandpa jokes. It's the highest form of humor. So one of our questions, Kevin, was actually, what is the strangest thing you've ever experienced while working at Lowell? Is that the skunk story or do you have something else? Uh, well, I mean, that would relate to staff and colleagues, but I probably shouldn't go into that. <laughs> but, um, I mean, the skunk is kind of a fun one. I, one time I was looking through a solar telescope and, and a plane just happened to fly through the field of view. And it was really cool, the shadow flying. And if you didn't know any better, you'd say UFO. And so, (laughs) you know, I couldn't, you know, I it caught me by surprise. And I realized what it was, but it's not like I could look up at the sun, you know, look away from the filtered telescope and look at the sun. But that was pretty cool. But I think that I think one of the um, coolest things that's kind of weird, I guess, is back in, I think it was 2003, um, we used to have a living history program where we dress up as dead astronomers and tell their lives. And I played Percival Lowell because, you know, I look and sound so much like him, you know, two eyes, a mouth, mm-hmm. hair. And so we had finished it and we were toasting the success of the program and toasting Uncle Percy, Percival Lowell, our founder, who of course is entombed on the site here. And uh, he's in a big sarcophagus, which is the side of the mausoleum. And so we went inside the mausoleum and we each had a glass of wine and cigars, and we were toasting him because Percival likes a good cigar. And we walked outside, and this is in the fall. Mars was up in the sky, the red planet. We walked outside, and the whole sky was deep red. Um, oh. it, was in, it was the northern lights. The only time I've ever seen them, they're very rare in Flagstaff. And here we are in the mausoleum, toasting Uncle Percy. Mars is up, and the sky is this deep red. It was really eerie. And, and you're dressed as Lowell. Right I was now. dressed as Lowell, yeah. It was really bizarre. 
Did you like immediately freeze and then like look off into the distance and start chanting when that happened just to freak everyone out? <laughs> we were already chanting around the mausoleum. <laughs> that was already happening. Well, See, that's I, think what, I think that's what brought it. I think it was the special <laughs> chant. This weird no. book we found with runes? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> when Mars is in the sky, and you just can, you know. Yeah. I think something about dressing like lol people is there's something about the energy that shifts like uh cody and i during our halloween oh tours at lol uh took shifts being the ghost of constance lol which was so much fun uh mm-hmm. but at one point i had to walk through the slifer building in like this floor length black dress with nothing but a little lantern in my hand and it was pitch black and there was Freezing. like the red it's like super cold yeah and like the red lights that go on at night in the hallways and i was like if i was ever going i'm gonna run into constance and she's gonna be mad at me yeah because i am running around like being this like spooky widow ghost and she probably doesn't appreciate it i ran up to turn off kevin's office light dressed in the big goth gown and the lantern and i was like yeah i'm just gonna run up there and you know click it off real quick and i was walking back down in a pitch dark building the one that was built to look like saturn called the rotunda and um you didn't have I got your spooked. little lantern i had my little my little candle that made lantern, it worse honestly i was like I'm, it made it worse <laughs> this is the i'm living a horror movie right now <laughs> i think i think constance would have been proud and constance was was personal Lowell's wife who right. married yes. when he was in his 50s and you guys dress perfectly because for years after he, he passed away in 1916 but she didn't she lived until the 1950s and whenever she visited she would always come, and this is before my time, I should point out. But this Are is sure? stories that I've heard from Henry Dickless and others. But she would always dress in black and sit at the mausoleum for hours at a time. And um, so I think you guys captured that kind of spookiness really well. Are you serious? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yep. you didn't know There's that. some pictures. I didn't know that, no. There's um, some pictures of her. And you, I mean, they're black and white, but you can tell it's a very basic black, all black. And she, it, it was a... Uh, the staff that were here at the time always commented that she she would just sit there for hours at a time. I think this is a really good lead-in into our first topic. Uh, our first two topics actually are spoopy. Uh, one, spoopy, we've got mausoleums. Um, so as Kevin mentioned, Percival Lowell is still on Mars Hill, uh, entombed in this beautiful mausoleum right like overlooking historic downtown flagstaff it's really quite a place to sleep for the long sleep and um yes the long sleep (laughs) there was um a really interesting creepy story that kevin you told when i first got here to lowell that i don't know do you mind sharing it again i think it's really neat it was the creepy part was about you coming to Lowell or the story itself? Yes, specifically. Which, yes. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and incessantly <laughs> asking you questions. <laughs> <laughs> and wondering where I've lived. So, yes. <laughs> trying to find out where Kevin lives. <laughs> so I, and, and I was, I heard this story when I first got here back in the 1990s. And then a, a friend of mine who worked at NAU for a year, she worked in the education program, confirmed that she had lived back during this time. But it was back in the 1970s. And our visitor center was then in the rotunda and some visitors at night, or I guess it wasn't at night, it was in the afternoon. They went up to the mausoleum because there's a great view from there. And they were looking at the mausoleum and they saw this 
stain, this liquid coming out of the building, and it was red color. They came running back to the visitor center and said, there's blood coming out the door. Like, you know, it's like an Amityville horror sort of thing. And our staff went up there and staff was a little skeptical because Percival had been dead for several decades. Uh, <laughs> probably not blood, but they went up there and it was during the monsoon season and water that there, there's a lot of metal in the, in the structure of the building. And there's a pool of rust that was coming out the door and that was the blood, the blood that they saw. That's amazing. And apparently, for years there was that there was kind of a stain there that that some people took as blood, but we know it's not, or we think it's not. Well, you know, the building is really neat, and it's a, you know, we joke about it, but it's, you know, it, we certainly respect Percival Lowell and his final resting place, and it's really neat because he's within what, 50 yards of the telescope that he used that he loved so much, and 50 yards of your office, the, the building where you two have an office. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're kind of reminded every day, you know, you kind of take it seriously that we're carrying on, we're carrying the baton for Percival Lowell. And we better not screw it up because he's right there watching us. Yeah, it's incredible that you can, like a, a tourist can just come up here and walk around and do a history tour and see the mausoleum and look through the 125-year-old telescope and then look through a brand new telescope and see a globular cluster. I don't know. It's it's a really a cool place. I like how it's uh, it kind of encapsulates all the things. The spooky stories are obviously Maddie and uh, my favorites of of all of them. So we had to start with the spooky ones, but mm-hmm. there are a lot of really neat stories uh, more relating to the astronomers. Um, Kevin, do you mind sharing some of those with us too? Sure. Well, I think one that's kind of interesting is sort of a, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of serendipity in science. Um, there's a lot of serendipity in everyday life. I think things that just, you know, for whatever quirky reasons they happen. But one I think is interesting is, um, you know, Low Observatory is specifically one of our early scientists, VM Slifer, was the first person to observe the expanding nature of the universe. Um, and based on his observations and the work of others, Edwin Hubble came up with the theory of the expanding universe um, a decade and a half later. Um, but the instrument that VM Slifer used is the 24-inch refractor, the classic telescope that still sits in the big birthday cake-looking dome on the side of the hill. Um, but it required an instrument called a spectrograph, um, which astronomers still use these instruments today. But the observatory hadn't had one. But um, we got the spectrograph. It's kind of a quirky story because when the observatory was first set up, we borrowed a couple telescopes, um, not the 24-inch, but a couple smaller ones, used them for the first year. And then Percival Lowell directed that they be returned um, to to um a fellow named John Brashear, and then to Harvard College Observatory. And and as Andrew Douglas uh, related in the cut in stories years later, um, he they needed some cleaner. They wanted to clean the lenses. So they, there was a boy hanging out on the hill, as he recalled, and they sent him downtown to get some good alcohol to clean the lens. <laughs> oh, and as, okay. <laughs> as Douglas said, he thinks the boy thought he said wood alcohol because when they put it on the lens, it etched a hole, a little hole in the lens, and that really damaged the lens. I mean, they could eventually fix it, but that was, 
know, this was a lens that we had borrowed and now, okay, here it is back and it's damaged. Oopsies. And, and so Percival Lowell felt really bad about that. And so he wrote to John Brashear and said, this happened. I want to make up for this in some way. How much can I pay you for repairing this? And John Brashear never really got back with them. Um, and, and so Percival Lowell said, okay, you know, I haven't paid you back for this, so I'm going to pay you back in another way. I'm going to order an instrument from you. Um, and I want to, I want to give you, I want to pay you back for that mistake. So let's make it the best instrument money can buy, the spectrograph. Um, and it turns out that's the instrument that Slaffer used to discover the expanding universe. So you know, it's that's hard really to say cool. if um, you know Lowell is still going to get a spectrograph, but you wonder, you know, he wanted to get the best thing money could buy just to pay, kind of pay back um, for that damage. For the guy so that you, left him on red. Exactly. He's <laughs> <laughs> too mad to say anything. Yeah. So Speechless. This spectrograph, um, didn't it discover something pretty darn cool? Yeah, it's the first evidence of the expanding universe. I mean, Which is my favorite. Oh, I, I'm like, like, Pluto is awesome. We love Pluto. We adore Pluto. We're throwing an entire festival for Pluto. Um, but my favorite, I think my favorite discovery re- related to Lowell is the expanding universe, just because it led to so many revelations in how we understand life. And I think the existential part of my brain really likes that bit. Right. And it, really? And mine doesn't. <laughs> it's like the universe is already infinitely huge and you're telling me it's getting bigger are you kidding me and it me? started from a bang and so now we know like where we came from and why this happened and it's like the whole genesis story of astronomy which is amazing and, and you could argue you could argue that it's the most important discovery ever made here it's certainly one of the most mm-hmm. important because as you said it really changed our idea i mean that told us the universe was much larger and much older. But there's another cool thing. You mentioned the Big Bang Theory. Um, and I have to mention this because it's just one of these fun, nerdy things. Um, years ago, I was watching TV, uh, waiting for the family to come home. And it was when the Big Bang Theory had just come out, the TV show. Oh, uh-huh. And so every once in a while, we'd be watching it. And I would notice this poster on the wall. You know, they have a lot of nerdy stuff. This poster looked like a telescope. And I thought it was kind of cool. And so... I'm waiting for the family, and this the scene comes up with a telescope. So I hit pause because I was TiVoing it, and it was not only a telescope; it was it was our Clark 24 inch. It was what? a poster. Yeah, it was a poster of an astronomer named Leonard Martin, and the picture was taken in the 1980s. Leonard had studied Mars, and it is a picture of him standing at the telescope, and you could just barely see Mars in the background, and this poster is on the door of Leonard and Sheldon. And so, of course, that inspired me to want to watch the, all the episodes. And it was on, on their closet door in season one. Um, and then they used different props in the other seasons. So when you That's say so the Big Bang cool. Theory, it's not just, you know, VM Slifer, Edwin Hubble, but it's also the TV show. They made a camera yeah. appearance on there. The reason I watched any of the Big Bang Theory is because Leonard Nimoy uh, was on there. Rock, paper, scissors, Spock? My late husband. Rock, paper, scissors, Spock? Yes. <laughs> you have a picture with him, right? Um, I 
Well, I wrote Leonard Nimoy fan mail <laughs> in college. Um, the picture I have is with uh, Bill, with Will Shatner, okay. uh, where I'm sobbing uncontrollably, um, which makes me glad and very relieved I did not meet Leonard Nimoy before he died because I would have highly embarrassed myself. And the restraining order, the time has run out on that, right? Yes, and it's un- unrele- <laughs> you know, unrelated, actually. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. And um, speaking of just like, contributions that Lowell has made. There are, I think, a few neat stories that we want to talk about regarding the, um, like, we, we've written here self-taught astronomers. Can you explain that a little bit and their contributions? Right. You know, you think about astronomy today. If you're, generally, if you're an astronomer today, you've gone to, to school, you might have, you got interested in somehow, but you've gone to school undergraduate, maybe a master's, got your PhD, um, you've, you've done a lot of schooling and, and maybe learned some on your own, certainly. But if you're doing research at a research facility, you probably have had a lot of schooling. Well, if we go back, you know, a century, a couple centuries, there were a lot of scientists who were called, you know, gentleman astronomer, gentleman scientist was one where it was people with means that didn't have to work you know, at a factory or somewhere else, they could afford to support themselves. And some of them did science on their own. Charles Darwin is a great example. Um, Percival Lowell is another example. Um, and and so Percival Lowell was, he went to college, went to Harvard, got a degree in mathematics, was a brilliant student, but he was really, in terms of astronomy, he was self-taught. Um, and it, it really seems like, okay, that was that was yesterday, years ago, that doesn't happen anymore. But, you know, as the years went on, and you look at some of the discoveries here, our, you know, professional college-trained astronomers have made amazing discoveries. But some of the things the observatory is most known for, um, you know, the personal Lowell's canals on Mars and the supposed intelligent life there, that was a self-trained astronomer. Clyde Tombaugh, who started working here was when he was 24 years old. He was so young. We have his bust on campus, and it's like yeah. this little kid almost. He, oh, he was 23, was, right? Yeah, he was 23 yeah. when he started here, and then 24 when he when he discovered Pluto, Jeez. and he was self-taught. He was growing up on the farm in, in Illinois, then Kansas. He learned all astronomy on his own and became proficient at observing and making drawings and such, that's what got him the job at Lowell. And, and he discovered the ninth planet. And then if we jump ahead another a couple decades, uh, Clyde Tombaugh photographed more than 80% of the sky in looking for Pluto and then other planets. Well, years later, one of the astronomers, Henry Giglis, decided let's re-photograph the same areas of the sky and compare the stars imaged from one survey to those taken a couple decades ago, and look at how the star positions have changed of something called um, proper motion. Well, one of the people they hired to help out was this guy named Robert Burnham. And the reason he started, he grew up in Prescott, and Henry Giclis read in the newspaper one day that this self-trained amateur astronomer in Prescott had um, discovered a comet, and it was making headlines. So that led Henry Giclis to to, um, talk to Robert Burnham, 
and he offered him a job here. And hmm. Robert Burnham worked on the proper motion survey for a couple decades, but for most um, astronomers, he's remembered as the guy who created this immense, remarkable three-volume compendium about the night sky, where he talks about every every of the 88 constellations. And he talks about the science, the mythology. He talks about coins, fossils, everything. And it's, it's called, it's, people know it as Burnham's Celestial Handbook. And That's he amazing. That while he was working here, again, self-trained, self-trained scientist. So it's neat to think that even in an era when um, you know, astronomers working at observatories, you're generally going to, you know, have PhD. There's still, there have been these people that have trained themselves and made remarkable discoveries. And I think that's really neat. That's really cool. I mean, I'm, I'm 24 now, but I, I think I, I might've also started at Lowell when I was 23 or maybe 22. Ooh. Um, Ooh. But I just remember thinking like, imagine I cannot even imagine discovering a planet right now. Like I, it's insane. I've I've always kind of felt a connection with uh, Clyde for that reason, though. This age-wise, no, nothing else. Obviously, we're not alike in any ways because you discovered a planet, and I, I haven't had anything but cereal for the past like three meals. So, okay. I love that. Um, how wholesome, like, just Percival Lowell got a spectrograph because he felt bad for a fellow business partner and and wanted to be a good person in his industry. And Clyde Tombaugh is like this, this sweet farm boy (laughs) with like nerding out in a cellar. Um, I don't know. I love a nerd, but I think that's super wholesome. Well, you're in the right place. We also have the highest observing station in the world. Uh, can you tell us about this? Right. Well, you know, Flagstaff, if you're familiar with Flagstaff, um, there's some distinct things about Flagstaff. There's the the aroma of the ponderosa pines. There's it smells the, like vanilla. It's amazing. Oh, it the 30 degree difference between day and night in the temperature. Um, but one of the most distinct things are the San Francisco peaks. Um, and the peaks are great if you're bad with directions, because as long as yes. you know where the peaks are, you have a frame of reference. I feel so called out. <laughs> um, in fact, some of our sidewalks here that go from from the visitor center to the Slifer Building Rotunda, they point their line to the north. So that's a good way of cheating. But also, mm-hmm. if you know where the peaks are, you can know it. But, but when, when Andrew Douglas... He came out here in 1894 on behalf of Percival Lowell. He came to Arizona to find a good place to set up his observatory. So so um, Douglas went to several places in Arizona, which was not a state yet. Tombstone, Tucson, Tempe, Prescott. Um, he tried, he set up telescopes in all these places um, and, and measured, uh, took meteorological uh, measurements like barometric pressure and temperature and such. He set telescopes up at night um, to look at, you know, the quality of telescope viewing. And then the 11th site he tested was on the side of Mars Hill. Um, and that that's what led to Lowell Observatory being established here in Flagstaff at the site we are here. Well, Douglas continued testing other sites 
Um, and he went up into the San Francisco peaks a couple times. And one thing with astronomy is the higher the elevation, the less air um, between you and the stars and the less interference. So if you, if you go outside at night, you see stars twinkling or you see the moon is really orange when it's rising. That's due to the atmosphere, to light being bent, being refracted, being messed up um, by the air. And the lower the elevation, the thicker the atmosphere, the more the viewing is going to get messed up. And so in general, observatories are at higher elevations. The higher the elevation, the less air you have to look through. It's like being in the bottom of a swimming pool. If you open your eyes and everything's fuzzy, the air does the same thing. So we want to reduce the amount of fuzzy. And so he tested some up on the San Francisco peaks. And for years, the observatory set up telescopes up there to get this higher elevation. And at one point, it was the highest, supposedly, the highest astronomical observing station in the world at 11 and a half thousand feet. The last thing that we want to go over we usually do a portion of the episode where we read news headlines that are interesting or fun, somewhat related to the topic. Uh, since today's topic is cool secrets and stories of Lowell, we have some interesting headlines for you guys. The first one I'm going to read is Martians build two immense canals in two years. Vast engineering works accomplished in an incredibly short time by our planetary neighbors. This was published by the New York Times, August 27th, 1911. Kevin, can you give us some context for this story? And were you the still the point of contact for media at the time? Um, that was a little bit before I got there to okay. the observatory. Uh, yeah, that was that was um, the middle of the personal lull. I hate to say fewer, but but really the, the the consciousness he built that there's life on Mars. And, you know, when we think about today, whenever there's talk about possible life elsewhere in the solar system or beyond, Percival's, Percival's name is always brought up because he really popularized this idea. And, and you know, this is 1911. He, from the 1890s through about 1907 is when he really did a lot of Mars research really through public talks and scientific articles and newspaper articles and such, he really built this, this consciousness that there's life out there and life on Mars. And in 1911, by that point, the majority of scientists had discounted his ideas. Um, and yet it was still making headlines in papers like the New York times that Percival Lowell reported these canals and, Today, we know these canals aren't even real. There's some sort of optical aberration. Um, but but even years after the scientific community had in general discounted them, I, I think they were still kind of hedging the bets, you know, kind of, I think people still hoping, okay, probably not there, but what if there is? And I think Quick that's bait. something, that's the mentality we still have today. So, so that's one of many newspaper stories that sounds, you know, it sounds like yellow journalism of Hearst and Pulitzer, who mastered this this time. But really, this was New York Times as a as a serious science story. I love the the story of Percival Lowell and his um, 
questioning if there are, are, you know, is life somewhere else and going forward with that, um, like hypothesis to prove himself right or wrong. And I think the reason I love this so much is because of the way I grew up in the scientific community. It was always, there are no dumb questions and that the more questions you ask and people laugh at you, um, that's when you're going to be able to like discover something that no one else would because they were afraid to, you know, uh, look a certain way or ask a silly question. Um, and in doing so, of course, he created this immense legacy in this huge research institution that we have today. So I don't know. I love, I love the story of, of Lowell and the Martians. And, you know, his ideas, you know, the canals weren't real. His ideas, you know, so many of them were just not right. But, but the fact is that he, you know, he started this observatory to, to further um, humankind's knowledge of the universe. And he sure as heck did that. And you look at his heritage, here we are 125 plus years later, um, going stronger than ever. And and not only current research, which we just had a press release that went out yesterday, one of our astronomers working on a project um, relating to um, work can help us better understand dark matter. Um, so this research is thriving more than ever, and yet, you know, we still harken back to Percival Lowell because so many of his ideas, um, he was so such a compelling speaker and writer that, you know, a lot of his ideas weren't right, but it got us thinking about life out there. And, and, and one of the things that he pointed out was, you know, to make an advance in science, you have to have imagination. And it's not just you know, fanciful making up things, but the imagination to look at things and come up with plausible solutions for them. And that really is a big part of doing science is the creativity, the imagination to come up with with and synthesize. And so I think that's something important he left us with. And it's, it is, it's cool to think about this and the legacy he left and how it's, his legacy continues to grow today. And I have two follow-up questions with that. Is there any connection between Lowell seeing these canals in Mars and cataracts disease? Well, there's certainly been been connection, potential connection. Um, Bill Sheehan, who's a good friend of ours, um, a good friend of mine, he's he's an astronomy historian, written, gosh, a couple dozen books now. Um, he and some others have suggested that the canals were um, some sort of reflections of you know, the, of the blood vessels in the eyes, that sort of thing. Um, so, so that's one idea that it could be, you know, having, you know, seeing sort of a mirrored image of, of our ocular device, our eye, um, could be, um, you know, there, during, during Percival's lifetime, there were other scientists who did different studies. Um, like one, they had, they made some drawings of dots and made them at different distances apart and then had observers stand further and further apart and you get to a certain point and the human eye tends to connect the dots as it were to where you have a line of dots and then at a certain point it looks like it's a line. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot of different things that can account for it. Um, it's amazing that we know today based on you know, excellent ground-based telescopes, and of course, spacecraft that have flown out there, the canals aren't there. They're, they're irregular channels, but not these linear features that crisscross the entire planet. And yet, 
his ideas really spurred on so much more research and and really science fiction, the genre of science fiction, um, exploded largely because of Percival Lowell. Edgar mm-hmm. Rice Burroughs, H.G. Wells, um, because Percival Lowell built this consciousness of life in the universe, life on Mars, you know, just like today, we're certainly going to be seeing books with a COVID theme, um, with a mm-hmm. COVID background. Back then, life on Mars, that was a big topic in everybody's minds. And so writers like H.G. Wells and, and Grace Burroughs wrote novels based on this, this phenomenon. We have um, one more space news item. The headline of this one is Ninth Planet Discovered on Edge of Solar System, First Found in 84 Years, published again by the New York Times, March 14th, 1930. Keyword planet. Yeah, so what is this ninth planet you're talking about? Well, I think a lot of people who are familiar with astronomy or Lowell Observatory might recognize the date because it was the day before. Um, that Clyde Tomlin discovered Pluto here. So this is the Times, New York Times announcement of Pluto being discovered, and it didn't have a name yet. They had discovered this planet, um, and it had been informally called, the observatory was searching for so-called Planet X, the unknown planet, which is what Percival Lowell called this theoretical planet. He didn't, and he had died in 1916, so he wasn't around for this. This search in 1930 was based on Percival Lowell's original searches. And this made news around the world because up to this point, two planets had been quote-unquote discovered, um, Uranus in 1781 and Neptune in 1846. And, and actually in 1801, um, supposed planets were discovered, but those were re- reclassified as asteroids or minor planets. So two planets have been discovered, um, none in America. So this is the first one in the 20th century, the first one in the United States, um, discovered by a self-taught farmer, a result of a search started 25 years earlier. They went on off and on. Um, it was a great story in so many ways. And, you know, since then, that had been 84 years um, since the discovery of Neptune and the discovery of Pluto. It's now been 92 years since the discovery of, of Pluto. And holy cow, we're coming up on a century since Pluto was discovered. You know, we should we still uh, celebrate, celebrate that or something. I think, <laughs> yeah. you know, what we should do is some sort of festival. We should do a and, festival. This is I like this idea. And, you know, we we love it so much, and Pluto has the heart shape. Maybe mm-hmm. a, you know, I I love Pluto festival. Yeah, or, yeah, something. You know, something we'll like workshop that. it. Maybe I yeah. heart Pluto. I don't know. We'll work oh, it. We'll I, work yeah, it. I heard, that's not a bad one. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I think what you're onto something. We should do a festival every year. You know, especially as we're heading toward 100 years and we've learned so much about Pluto and the outer solar system in the years since, especially with the New Horizons mission that flew by, gosh, half a dozen years ago. Uh, we're holding this IR Pluto Festival every year in Flagstaff with partners around the community. And because of COVID, uh, last year's was completely virtual. This year, we're still planning in person with, with virtual aspects. Um, if COVID requires, we'll we'll make it all virtual, but we're planning in-person element. And we're going to have an art show with space artists. And I think, to me, that 
if you pick one special night, it's February 18th. Yes. And we're going to have the event at the Orpheum where Clyde Tumba saw a movie, The Night He Discovered Pluto. And, and our theme for the night is the night of discovery. So, of course, it's celebrating Pluto's discovery, but really on a larger scale, that human drive to explore and, and the thrill of discovery. And so we have a panel that includes Don Johansson, who discovered oh. the fossil hominid Lucy in 1974. I'm so Alan, excited. Uh, it's so cool. Um, oh, what a cool uh, exhibit. If you never got to see the Lucy exhibit when it was going around, I'd was one of my favorite things ever. Yeah, so it's it's going to be a really fun time where we can talk about this exciting exploration that we do, and and all the information is on our website. And who else is going to be speaking at that event? So, so the, our panelists include Don Johansson, Alan Stern, who's the principal investigator for New Horizons mission, twice has been named one of the hundred most important people in the world by Time Magazine. Um, we have an astronaut, Nancy Curry-Gregg, who flew into space four times. Um, Al Tomba, who is Clyde Tomba's son. And um, Kathy Olkin, who actually worked here a little years ago. She's up at the Southwest Research Institute. And she um, is, was involved in New Horizons. And she's also um, largely involved with the Lucy mission. And the Lucy mission, whereas the Lucy fossil that Don Johansson discovered helped unravel the evolution of humans. The Lucy mission named after the fossil hominid is going to help us unravel the evolution of the solar system. So all these people are coming together and then our director, Jeff Hall is going to be monitoring that conversation. It's going to be really fun. And then at the same event, our friends in town, Mother Road Brewing has created another specialty brew in honor of Iher Pluto Festival. Yes. This year's beer is Low Observatory Lager, LOL. LOL. And we're going to have that. They're making cans for it, and the can design is spectacular. Oh, um, I'm so stoked. Oh, it's We've be got so much sushi fun. named after Pluto. We've got an axe-throwing game named after Pluto. We've got a cock- two cocktails, one at the runway, which is a really a- amazing nightclub downtown who's also our main sponsor for this festival and a cocktail at historic brewing um downtown it's the whole it's just so neat to see everyone coming together to celebrate uh pluto yes really you know it's fun for us but it's also gosh we need some fun stuff the last couple of years what a great reason to celebrate and pluto's adorable my my favorite thing um John Compton, who was on our last episode, always makes the joke because um, Pluto was uh, the naming of the planet was made from a contest where people would write in suggestions. And it was this 11 year old girl named Venetia, right, who suggested Pluto. And he's always joking that it's this little girl who's like, excuse me, sir, how about we name it after the god of death? <laughs> it's like, yes, that's so cool. This girl is metal. I'm like, let's call it Midnight Sparkle. Like, I don't... Yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, it works because it's like a dark, little gloomy, icy planet. It's our little goth, our little goth guy out there. I love him. Yeah, the underworld. The most distant, yeah. cold region of the solar system. <laughs> The god of the underworld. 
do we know what part of England that she was from? Because we have to make sure that we have the accent like in the right dialect, you know? We do. Yeah. I just know she was an 11, 11 year old English girl. So it has to be in the. Yeah. She could have been from Essex. She'd been like, oh, I love. <laughs> <laughs> Oi, mate. What about the god of the underworld? Thought of that, innit? <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. I hope it. that's how it's <laughs> It's icy, in it? It makes sense. You get it? A bit cold, isn't it? A bit cold, isn't it? Like, literally, literally, babes. Name it. <laughs> literally. Oh, my gosh. Sorry. I will Sorry, never, British every time people. I see her picture in the rotunda, she's this adorable girl with, like, this little so pixie cute. cut. She will always have that accent now in my head. I love yeah. it so much. Well, thank you for joining us on this super cool episode of Star Stuff. Great to hang out with you guys. And if anyone has any question about the history of Lowell or any of the stories we mentioned here today, uh, as Maddie said earlier, send those questions into Twitter at LowellObs, our info at Lowell.edu email, or you can join our Star Stuff Discord. And we will get Kevin to answer those questions and read them out on our next show. We also have a Star Stuff Twitter as well, at Star Stuff Pod. That's right. We do have our Star Stuff, Star Stuff Pod. Star Stuff Pod. It's, we're posting all the episodes, but we also got Haley and Wesley to, to post on there and share fun things too. So it's definitely worth a follow. This podcast was brought to you by Lowell Observatory members and subscribers like you. 